Welcome to Arcade Attack. A retro gaming podcast for up to four players. Hi guys, Adrian here from Arcade Attack, and on today's show, I interview James Purplehampton. Now, he started his gaming career working at LucasArts and then moving on to Atari. He is probably best known for his stellar work at producing the absolute classic and arguably the best Jaguar tile ever made, Alien vs. Predator. So sit back and enjoy a really, really interesting talk with a real legend himself. So today on Arcade Attack, I've got James Purplehampton, a bit of a legend, uh, proper Jag legend here. So, it, so thank you so much for being here, James. Really do appreciate this. Oh, thanks, Adrian. And thanks for the interest. Uh, always up for uh, talking about the Atari days. Can't wait. Uh, before we talk about the Atari days, there's, there's obviously quite a bit more to talk about before that. So the first, the first question to get things moving uh, What are your earliest and fondest memories of playing games when growing up? So starting right back. In the real, uh, the first few days. Sure, um, you know, like a lot of people, uh, that first time in junior high school, when a friend of mine convinced me to slip out the back at school and head over to the arcade that opened a few blocks away, stepping into this darkened den full of stand-up coin-up arcade games, hearing the signature warp sounds from the Defender machine, yeah. stepping up onto the battle zone, peering through the goggles while using the dual sticks to blast that crazy saucer that went racing by. And then, you know, becoming mesmerized by the clever mechanics of Star Castle. Yeah, yeah. Which took, you know, that game took more quarters for me than I can remember. <laughs> so that's one aspect of it. But, um, the other was probably beyond the arcade experience was founding a Dungeons and Dragons club in an old storage closet at school with friends. And that became the foundation for one of the first games I helped make, um, which was a sort of a live action version of Dawn of the Dead themed role playing game that we sprung upon our D&D group that we cobbled together using rules from other role-playing games like Champions and Car Wars to play. Nice one. That sounds really good. Oh, fair play. So yeah. start, starting making games when, you, when you're growing up, brilliant. Yeah, we just always had an inclination. It was um, We loved to play them, like to build them, you know? <laughs> yeah, fair play, yeah. Brilliant. Um, how did you first get into the video game industry then? What was your first opportunity? Um, so... Uh, it was a bit of a surprise. Uh, the 90s for me started off with a bang when, as a college student in Massachusetts, my house burned down and I lost almost everything I ever owned. So um, not long after, I kept having the same dream about driving west in a purple car. So I found a car, painted it purple, and got on the road to the west coast. Um, I, I landed in Marin County in the northern part of the Bay Area of California. 
and I responded to an anonymous ad in the local paper looking for people with experience playing computer games, which, of course, I had a lot. (laughs) Um, When I got to the interview, I remember asking what was with all the Star Wars posters in the lobby, only to be told that I was interviewing at Lucasfilm Games, (laughs) which was (laughs) like a lifelong dream of mine come true. Um, There, uh, Kirk Ralston the supervisor of the testing department and who gave me my first break, really. He had lost my resume and decided to hire me on the spot anyways after we talked about all the different games and consoles available at the time. Oh, nice. I'm, so, I'm sorry about the house burning down, but blimey, it sounds like you, you took things you know, in your own hands, basically. So fair play to you. Yeah, it was definitely one of the best and worst things that ever happened. Kind of strange, right? That's weird. <laughs> I was going to ask really, really late on, actually, how you got your nickname Purple, but... I think you've kind of explained it already, so fair play to you. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Trumming up in a purple marbleized car does it for you, right? <laughs> what, what, what color was the car before you painted it purple? Uh, it was a blue Saab 99 just, uh, GL. So. <laughs> just freshen up a little bit. Nice. nice. Yeah, yeah. So it, was, it was a fun ride. Made the going across country journey uh, pretty exciting, actually. <laughs> Sounds really good. Um, the Secret Monkey Island, probably is in my top three games of all time, all time I'd say. Uh, it's I love it. You know, it's so such good memories for me. And I know you you, you worked on it actually. So, what, what was it like playtesting this game? And did uh, did this early experience help you in the career in your career later on? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, when I started at Lucasfilm Games, just uh, just as Monkey Island was in its final beta test phase before release, it was my first exposure to uh, crunch time. And my first day in the job was a Saturday testing session that included people from throughout the company who all gave up their weekend to play test the latest builds of the game. Mm. This was my first taste of what it was, of what it took to actually get a game made and out the door into manufacturing, seeing firsthand the friction caused by the pressure to release the game in time for Christmas and the desire of the game development team to make it the best game possible. The charged atmosphere was both electric and exhausting, with the team working around the clock at times to make fixes and improvements before the game reached a gold master state and ready for release. You know, this early experience emphasized how important the combined efforts of everyone throughout the company and their willingness to go above and beyond giving up their nights and weekends is what pushes the game to greatness. It's amazing, isn't it? It's talked about so much even today. I mean, have you played played it recently or... I, I I played when they did the remastering, like course, on the yeah. PlayStation. Um, those were it was great to see the art get that nice treatment to it, um, but the mechanics staying the same. You know, who can you know the sword fighting is still the sword fighting's art, right? Of the, course, the, yeah, the yeah. The best one of my favorite parts of that game. <laughs> Fair play. Um, I've had the honor as well to speak to David Fox a few a few weeks back. He's been on one of our podcasts recently, and there's also you know we can name such other legends like Ron Gilbert, Gary Winnick. Uh, did you actually work closely with them? I appreciate you more the playtesting area, but did you work closely with, with those proper legends back in the day? Well, you know, being in the testing department, you sort of uh, sort of have interactions with almost everyone throughout the co- the company. Um, you know, the atmosphere at Lucasfilm Games during the time was sort of a creative chaos. Ooh. You know, it was a, a fun environment full of bright and talented people who all wanted the same thing to make the guests best games possible, and who all were willing to go to that extra mile to get it there. Ooh. Um, for me, uh, I did get to work with Ron Gilbert, uh, on Monkey Island 2. Yeah. I was a lead tester on that and Ron was uh, very inclusive in the creative process and welcomed what, uh, we in testing called the giant D for design bug document nice, nice. <laughs> that, um, a few of us in testing, including folks like Jim Current, Mark Cartwright, Brett Mogolivsky and more, we all put together. 
It was uh, full of ideas and reactions to the earliest build of the Monkey 2, and uh, Ron listened. And we in QA were super psyched to see some of the concepts make it into the final game, such as this, you know, that screwball take on the Indiana Jones travel map, where it's sort of as you're guiding yourself around, or the card catalog in the library room. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I you talking about that, yeah. Some Easter eggs that we could squeeze in. Nice. And um, while I didn't have a lot of interactions with Gary Winnick, he did step up and rally his, the, you know, he was the leader of the art department and um, sort of uh, got them all to, uh, to participate in their section of the, what was the company video mm. that a few of us in QA had been asked to make, which was shown at the LucasArts annual company meeting, which you can find out there on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> um, and David Fox, you know, he was, um, I always looked at David as a, he was, Seemed like the unofficial voice of reason at Lucasfilm Games. Nice. You know, <laughs> I mean, having made some of the earliest titles, such as a truly excellent Ball Blazer game, as well as the initial scum projects like Maniac Mansion and Zach McCracken, you know, he valued quality, inspired the company to uh, always aim high and push for the best possible games, and sort of learn that threshold of quality from him. Brilliant. Well, I think it's is it safe to assume you, you kind of learned from the best from your first experience in gaming. I mean, absolutely. I, you know, didn't realize it at the time of just what a critical juncture it was, but I definitely know now just how lucky and fortunate those days were. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I asked David, actually, if he ever got to meet George Lucas, and he said he hardly ever popped into the office and he was busy making these films. Did, did you ever get the chance to see George Lucas? Or? You know, um, there was some specific, you know, um, George isn't a very public figure, so... Yeah. It was um, occasionally like at the uh, 4th of July company picnic, he would um, sort of make himself available or surface. So I actually got to uh, fulfill a lifelong dream. Um, as a kid, I grew up, I drew out the entire Star Wars movies in oh, nice. about two or 300 pages. And this was one of the few things I actually pulled from the wreckage of that fire. So um, when I got to the company picnic, I you know was able to show it to George, like fulfilling my oh, wow. dream as an eight-year-old to show it to George Lucas, and he signed it for me, which was awesome. And so, uh, oh, fair <laughs> play! My life. <laughs> good, good on you taking the opportunity. Brilliant. Um, obviously, the, these are proper legends you were with. Do you, do you have a personal favorite game that, that you maybe tested or just played in your own time? Which, what's your favorite Luca, Lucas Arts game? Looking back, well, I'll always have a soft spot for the. Um, often forgotten game uh, Night Shift, um, which is where you're making action figures in a, in a factory, have to kind of keep the machine running. Um, that was the first test title I was lead tester on and included this one design feature, which I always look at as my first design feature that made it into a game, you know. Nice. <laughs> um, but probably I, my favorite game is probably Monkey Island 2, LeChuck's Revenge. Yeah. Um, I was super involved in the process, and um, it would definitely have to be my favorite LucasArts games. You know, folks like Ron Gilbert leading the scum team mm. made up of people like Tim Schaefer and Dave Grossman were open to feedback from us testers and even included us in the brainstorming for the climactic ending of the game or my suggestion to make it like a St. Elsewhere-like ending where it's revealed that it was all a dream became the basis for the cliffhanger finale where oh. it revealed that Chuck and Guybrush are actually two brothers in the real world just as we see uh, LeChuck's Eerie's eyes glow wow. in the final shot. <laughs> That's your idea. Brilliant. Yeah, I mean, it was like this jam session, and we're just sort of, he was kind of open to ideas, and I had always liked the way the St. Elsewhere ending worked, that kind of dream within yeah. a dream thing, you know? <laughs> well, that's brilliant. I mean, fair play, because it shows they, they listened, and you had some great ideas, and obviously it sounds like, well, just even speaking to David a few weeks ago, he said the atmosphere was in, it was incredible. Everyone was looking after each other and chipping in here and there. So it sounds like it was a yeah. good time. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like everyone had the right spirit about it that, mm. you know, we, anything we could do to sort of push the game to be the best game it could be. And, you know, that was really, you know, amazingly important to, and vital for people to um, hold on to and, and fight for. So, fair enough. It sounds like you had a pretty good little number at LucasArts and obviously you're well respected, but why did you end up leaving in the end? Well, um, just as Lucas, this <laughs> is as the experience was educational and, um, you know, sort of learning how games are made. It was also a, it was something that I would learn that happens all too frequently in the games business. Whereas after a, mount, a massive amount of hiring and expansion, the company realizes its headcount is unsustainable and right. has a massive layoff. So um, in this instance, almost half the company got laid off <laughs> as it was transitioning from the sort of George Lucas funded Lucasfilm games division into uh, the self-sustaining LucasArts company, which was a self running entity outside of a Lucasfilm altogether. Right. That's not of the nicest. Part way of the- to, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a shame. That must be a huge shame at the time. I, I take it. Um, it. It was, it was sort of a shock, but it was like, again, sort of prepared me for my rest of my time in the games business, which is, it's sort of a, as a, it's an industry that has its highs and lows and yep. you have to sort of learn to ride the ride. Um, why? It's like not unexpected to have that happen, so <laughs> just get adjust to it. Well, yeah, you obviously dust yourself down, and I, I assume you moved on from quality assurance and game testing to actually producing games. Was was that the next step, and how would you describe those two roles? How do they differ from each other? Um, so uh, when I moved from QA to producing, I, you know, I did so with a little help from my friends. Um, after the LucasArts layoff, my friend uh, Terry Bratcher, who I met at Lucasfilm, Helped me uh, get go- keep me going in the Bay Area with uh, getting me some work painting apartments through his wife's business, right. which was you know kind of keep the wheels going. And um, during this time, another friend of mine who I also worked at Lucasfilm, Brandy Wilson, put me in touch with Mitzi McGillray, who worked as a producer at Maxis in the East Bay. Mm-hmm. They're the SimCity people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I was able to get a job at the Maxis QA department, and even though I was only there for six months, I got to meet people like Carter Lipscomb, who had become my longtime friend. And uh, had regular brunches at this place called Millie's, uh, a nearby diner with people like Will Wright, who was eager to talk about his dollhouse project, which would eventually become The Sims. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a legendary um, game, yeah. Yeah, and while I was at Maxis, I got a phone call from, um, again, my friend Brandy again, and she put me in touch with her sister Lori, who worked at in the business department at the Atari Corporation. Uh, they were looking for producers for a new game console under development, which I would learn to become the Jaguar. Yep. And um, she took my resume over to the development team, and after a few interviews, I got hired into my first producer job. Nice. So, um, you know, starting in QA afforded me a perspective into all aspects of the game development process. As a tester, we regularly interacted with the programmers, the artists, sound designers, folks from the marketing and legal department. And this provided a pretty solid background to understand the process of how a game is made start to finish. You know, as as a producer, your job is to become the champion and the leader of the game, making sure the resources, manpower, time, budget, money (laughs) are allocated and available, all while pushing the creative side to ensure it can be the best game possible. You know, as a as a person who started as a tester at Lucasfilm, I learned how important it is to set the bar high and strive to maintain a gold standard of quality for games. And as a producer, I was able to build on this background and directly apply those standards to the projects in every stage of development. Oh, so. fair, fair play to you, fair play. Um, what was it like working during the company, uh, you know, during um, Atari, during those early Jag years? I, I imagine it was, especially during the early years, pretty innovative and really 
really ambitious. You know, um, creative chaos rules the roost in the games business, and this um, another flavor of chaos ruled the days at Atari mm. during those early Jaguar years. Um, when I first arrived at Atari, the, the company seemed to be at a crossroads. It was trying to reconcile its legacy as the company behind the first wildly game, you know, wildly successful game console, the original 2600 or VCS, as you know it. Um, And at the same time, it was a company that needed to learn new ways of doing things in order to to be current or match the the current generation of gaming. Um, When I started working there, it was just after the Atari office in Chicago was closed down and all of the half finished projects, primarily Lynx games needed to be completed. And this was going on while the Jaguar hardware itself was um, being developed. Yeah. There are quite a few people at Atari that still remember the days of huge selling games that were built by one or two man development teams. And I recall meeting with, um, you know, Atari's president, Sam Trammell, and describing just how many people worked on Monkey Island 2, for example, at LucasArts. And he couldn't fathom just how it was possible, how a game with that many people and a production budget could ever be profitable. And that always captures like what I consider to be the fatal gap yeah. in, in the thinking. Um, it was this kind of thinking that was responsible for the strategy for the Jaguar's initial launch titles where there was this idea that as there were four programmers in the internal Jaguar game development team, there would they would be able to get four games made in less than six months on an untested console system that had very little in the way of support tools for the coders. So, of course, this is a terribly unrealistic approach, and it wasn't long before those two, those four titles became two as we cut back the resources and threw them at the remaining games, but... Um, it was still a little bit, too, a little too little, too late in some ways. <laughs> All right. Just speak. Just hearing that answer, then you can kind of get a, a reason, probably why the Jaguar. Even though I, I've, I've, I love the Jaguar, I've, it's one of my favourite consoles. But you can see, even then, maybe the philosophy wasn't quite right. Um, yeah, I mean, there were, as I said, it seemed to be struggling between two timelines, yeah. right? Like there were literally people there who were still around from the original days and. You know, their thought was, oh, it takes a single person, a single person can make an entire title and they can do it in less than six months, which was perhaps true in the 70s, but certainly not in the 90s. Fair place. Yeah. And obviously, I think you coming in shook him a little bit and hopefully pushed him in the right direction. Um, Well, yeah. I mean, Sam ultimately grew as, you know, as working there. He was the one who opened up, you know, Sam Trammell really did you know, extend the schedule for AVP and really sort of, hmm. he stepped up and was, was ready to learn new, new, new things. It's just those initial, that initial launch title didn't quite get that treatment, you know, it was like a little bit down the road. Fair enough. I am a huge fan of Alien vs. Predator. I have to say, I'm, I, still, I still, I still play it today. I think it's, I think it's that and Tempest 2000 is probably my favorite Jaguar games. I, I oh, go yeah. back to them often. Um, so in my view, you, you help produce one of the, or if not the best title on the Jag. I mean, how, how did this opportunity first come up? And was, obviously, I, I heard rumors, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but was it supposed, was it initially supposed to be a launch title for the Jaguar? No, um, Alien vs. Predator was never meant to be a launch title. Um, early on in the pre-production planning stage, it was recognized that the Jaguar AVP would be, an ambitious effort and need a little bit more time and development. So I believe the original target release date was spring of 94, a Q2 release yeah. in uh, business terms. Um, yeah. the, the development period was extended to the fall of 94 when I convinced Sam Trammell to uh, relocate the programmers from England and set them up working directly with the Atari level design team at Atari headquarters in Sunnyvale, California. Um, 
the Atari Alien vs. Predator game itself began as a title the Chicago office of Atari had been started, and they recruited UK-based uh, development studio Images Studio, which was run by Carl Jeffries, um, and they developed the initial handheld Lynx um, version of the game. Mm. The, uh, the AVP license itself had been acquired through Activision, and originally the game was supposed to be a, a simple port of the Super Nintendo version, which was based on the Alien vs. Predator arcade game where you sort of yeah. play a Predator side-scrolling, punching out yeah, aliens or something. It's a good game. It's a good game, to be fair. Decent, decent game, but um, you know, we, we thought we could improve upon it. And uh, when Atari shut down their Chicago office and uh, AVP got assigned to me as one of the first projects I've to work on when I started at Atari in the uh, fall of 92. Um, and when I took the project over, all development had stopped by that point. Um, and I was left to kind of scour the Atari uh, internal BBS boards to find the most recent Lynx ROM files that had been uploaded. And the, um, the images Lynx development team had built a, an initial demo prototype which I think still floats around the internet to this day. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you were able to play as, um, to let players as a colonial Marine or a predator. Hmm. Um, the design didn't include the alien as a playable character, uh, a detail that I was able to get changed when we at Atari submitted a new proposal to Activision and 20th century Fox for the Jaguar version. Yeah. Good on you. Um, yeah. And I was able to sell that idea of, um, the original design docs for the Lynx AVP had featured a number of characters and locations named in the, Alien vs. Predator comic book series that was published by Dark Horse Comics. Mm. And I used that. We didn't have a licensing agreement with Dark Horse, and I was able to use that as a reason to justify the, our submission of a new design plan for the upcoming, upcoming Jaguar version. You know, yeah. the, um, the updated design pitched to 20th Century Fox identified the Jaguar title as a first-person shooter because we're all playing you know, games like Wolfenstein and Doom at the time, we were pretty inspired and, and included the ability, you know, the notion that we wanted to play all three sides, the alien, the predator and the Marine. Um, and when, uh, when I started, began at Atari, they were also, they, at, they were starting to ramp up the external Jaguar game development efforts. And, um, AVP was a, identified early on as a project that would end up eventually be contracted out to a uh, rebellion development, um, in Oxford mm. in the UK. And during those initial discussions, Atari shared the design docs from the Lynx version, as well as the three-sided design concepts that we had developed internally at Atari and um, by the people who had become the Atari level design team for the final game. Right, nice. That's some really interesting things there. Thank you. Um, I mean, I, I remember growing up and I, I saw early screenshots and it, it, it seemed like a game. You know, just looking at the screenshots, that, that was different. It stood out from... What's currently out there? I know, obviously, Doom and Wolfenstein were huge at the time, but this just looked amazing, like almost like playing, playing like a movie. Um, did you know that it was going to be something quite special from from early on? And can you run through how this game was produced quickly? Yeah, I mean, um, we uh, we all we all loved Alien and Predator movies, and we all believed we wanted you know do right by those characters. So we were kind of taking it from. We as fans, this is what we as fans would love to see, and we all sort of treated it as a special opportunity to really kind of get it right, if you will. Yeah. And we sort of had that attitude through every stage. Um, I will say the screenshot to the screenshots of all the Alien versus Predator, you know, the creative and unique art direction was established by the Rebellion team and their art department. Um, to show off the Jaguar's capabilities, the Rebellion artists used photos of set tiles and model kits of the Alien and Predator characters, which were meticulously painted and posed and animated by artists Stuart Wilson and Toby Banfield at Rebellion. Uh -huh. 
you know, you know, um, there's a funny story that goes with it. One of those, you know, we actually used the model resin kits that were available for, you know, um, and one of those model kits was so hard to get that we actually had to smuggle it into the UK. You know? <laughs> really? <laughs> um, the alien <laughs> character, you know, famously created by the controversial artist H.R. Giger, mm. featured enough uh, questionable material, I guess, for UK customs that it prevented a model kit of the alien queen several times from entering into the UK. <laughs> so I literally actually had to purchase one in the States and hand carry it into my, in my carry on luggage to get it to the UK and into Oxford in time. Uh, you got a few looks, I'm sure. <laughs> carrying that <laughs> It was odd. It was funny, but Hey, again, that spirit of whatever it takes to get the job done. Right. <laughs> yeah. Did you, did you mainly work in the game in, in England then? Or was it obviously it's a joint, a joint sort of thing? Was it England or, or America? Where were you working mainly with in the game? Well, at that time, uh, the, the primary development was still focused in the, in Oxford. Yeah. Um, you know, in fact, uh, you know, the, the extra, um, the, the process of, uh, working with rebellion, we realized at one point that we needed to extend the schedule and, and sort of stretch it out. Um, yeah. the, uh, the development contract that Atari first made with rebellion, um, you know, for the AVP Jaguar, well, let's say it was underfunded. I, I wasn't privy to the, uh, original negotiations oh, and, during the course of the original development cycle, it took far longer than anyone than the contract's original milestone dates allowed. So this caused many issues, including a critical problem brought up to me by the AVP programming programmers from Rebellion, uh, Andrew Whitaker and Mike Beaton, who both told me in the spring of 94 that they weren't getting paid by Rebellion wow. because the original contract budget had been spent. So um, the game was at an alpha stage at this point, um, not really ready for release, even though the release date was supposed to be at spring of 94. Um, and it included sort of the first, like a, a, a working random generated first person engine that kind of featured most of the in-game art created by Toby and Stewart at Rebellion. Mm. Um, getting Mike Beaton and Andrew Whitaker paid by Atari was one of the many issues that got ironed out when Sam Trammell the president um, agreed to my proposal to extend the development timeline, bring the team, um, you know, back, you know, to bring the programmers of uh, Andrew and Mike from the UK and have them located on site at the Atari headquarters during the summer yeah. and time for end of year holiday release date. So once the rebellion programmers were in Sunnyville, they were able to work directly with the hardware Jaguar engineers to resolve some of the technical buzz bugs they were struggling with mm. and um as well they were also worked directly with to implement the level map story and gameplay design developed by the in-house atari level design team as well as all of the sound effects and music created by the atari audio department so oh, nice. it was really a sort of a cross you know cross-continent <laughs> development process <laughs> overall and obviously that explained why it was uh, <laughs> postponed and delayed a little bit you know to and fro and so forth but fair play to keep plugging away at it so good on you yeah. And again, I have to give credit to, um, to Sam Trammell for having, you know, for backing my, my plan and having the vision to realize it would be better to come out with a great game in the fall than come out with a on time, not so good game in the spring. So, you know, he, he saw the potential and, and gave us the extra runway to actually, you know, pull it all together. Oh, fair play. And, you know, just reading on the internet, I think Sam Trammell doesn't always get the respect he deserves. He, he you know, some people, I'm not always his biggest fans we did with Atari, but it sounds like for you at least he was a good a good person to work for. Is that fair enough? You know, yeah. I mean, looking back, I, I consider I, I, it was an honor to work with Sam Trammell. Yeah. I mean, he really, you know, he he 
he demonstrated someone who, you know, clearly a business leader, but also willing to listen, listen to and able to grow, you know, not change his own point of view and learn the new realities of what game development was like in the 90s and and try to, um, you know, do what's best for, you know, try to see it our way of like what would make for the best games and the value of giving um, extra time and that extra push to uh, to nudge things along. I I, I really, um, res- you know, respect Sam for having the vision to, to take us there. Oh, brilliant. It's really, really good to hear this, actually. Fair play to you. Um, I've heard, you know, I, 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 I do a lot of digging around the Jaguar. I love learning more about the Jaguar. And I've heard some rumours, and you can tell me if they're wrong or correct or whatever, that Alien vs. Predator literally pushed the Jag almost beyond its limits. It, through some very clever programming, for some very clever kind of tricks of the trade, they managed to, they managed to push the game. Uh, to the console's maximum abilities. Would would you feel that's fair enough? Or is there any other games you think deserves this accolade as pushing the Jaguar to its limits? There's, there's a big debate online. Has the Jaguar ever really reached its limits? And I, you know, I think Alien vs. Predator might be the one. What do, what do you think? You know, um, I've heard, I also have heard a lot of rumors about games that push the limits about what the Jaguar hardware could do. Mm. And, you know, I would agree in, in its own way, AVP pushed the envelope for sure. Mm. Um, the amount of data that could be loaded into memory at once was really taken to the limits by the game's attempt to do photorealistic textures for all the art elements. I mean, that was um, above and beyond. And I know one of the initial, you know, things that the rebellion team was struggling with and was able to work out with the, um, the Jaguar hardware engineers, um, you know, that said, as there were very little in the way of developer tools for the Jaguar as a whole, by my view, any Jaguar development team that completed a game most likely in one way or another pushed the limits of what could be done. <laughs> I know that yeah. sounds like a lot, but um, unlike, say, the modern consoles where there's usually a full library of coding tools and development um, assets they can work with, there was a, it was a pretty um, empty toolbox to start with <laughs> that most of the teams faced. Oh, fair enough. I mean, it's not got a huge library, the Jaguar. Um but it sounds like any any of the completed games, uh, the, the developers deserve a little pat on the back because it doesn't sound the easiest console to make games for. So yeah, yeah exactly. The fact that they made it to the finish line at all—that's that's pushing the envelope. <laughs> yeah, it's it's probably another reason why I've heard heard so many interviews and stuff online why, why so many games were never finished or completed. There's there's such a huge list of games that have never been released and are so close to being finished for the Jaguar. It's a bit sad, really. But there you go. Yeah, that's, yeah, again, one of the lessons you learn as in the games industry is sometimes, uh, you know, it, it, it takes getting to the finish line is a lot harder than it seems. <laughs> Fair funny. enough, yeah. Um, I mean, you worked with some very talented people, obviously, before Alien vs. Predator, during Alien vs. Predator. And I, I I would say, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but none more so than the Marine himself, Lance Lewis. Now, we would you be able to share a few stories of this great man he who we recently found out passed away recently what's yeah. your views on on lance lewis and you know um lance you know this is one of the legends of the great late and great lance j lewis i mean just to kind of capture the kind of person who he was and he was a, a, a you know mm. a, a true friend um you know, at the, at the very end of the development of the Jaguar AVP, the game had to be approved by 20th Century Fox before we could release it to manufacturing. And our um, contact and account manager at Fox in their licensing department was about to travel out of the country for almost a month. So we had this very narrow window to gain his stamp of approval. Mm. 
And on the day when the, the Fox representative was supposed to be getting on a plane to leave for three weeks, I recall that, uh, again, Sam Trammell used some of his influence to get him to come into his office at, you know, Nakamochi Plaza or, you know, the Fox <laughs> headquarters in Los Angeles for a final approval and review meeting, um, the morning that he was supposed to take flight. Mm-hmm. And so the AVP crew had been working around the clock. And on that final morning, after another all night testing session, we had finally reached a stable build ready to be shown to Fox. And as I headed out the door from Atari headquarters, you know, there was Lance J. Lewis, who had been up all night with the rest of us, pulls up in front of me in his Jeep and tells me he's going to get me to the San Jose airport on time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he had so little time to get there. So I will never forget zooming down like the 101 as the sun was rising up on Silicon Valley on this hot August day and believing it when he looked me in the eye and said, you know, Lance told me we're going to make it just in time, you know. <laughs> It was this kind of, you know, his kind of positive energy, this can-do attitude in the face of the impossible odds that Lance always seemed to have ready to share with people. You know, he stepped it up, he, along with his fellow testers, to become the level design team for AVP, mm. you know, transforming from a tester to a level designer. Mm. And he always had something extra to add, you know, whether it was working up a complete walkthrough with strategies to complete the game or preparing a detailed level designs worked up on pencil and graph paper. You know, Lance did what... It took not to only get it done, but get it done well. You know, after I left Atari, um, I would go on to work with him at Rocket Science Games as well as Cyclone Studios, where really I, his wisdom helped guide me to work habits that let me, you know, leave the work stress at the office so you can balance it out and have a life at home. I mean, he really had this wise Zen way of looking at things, and I, I learned a lot from him, you know. Lance J. Lewis was the kind of guy you knew had your back, you know, smart, creative, funny, and wise bond beyond his years he he's going to be missed that's a really uh, lovely you know i think you've given a good tribute there james i know it's not easy is it because it, you know he's, yeah. he, he sounds like a friend of yours and you, you go way back so i do really appreciate you talking about lance and you know i'm sure he would appreciate your kind words so fair play to you yeah it was a bit of, just a bit of a shock yeah thanks yeah. for letting me say say something about it i really no, i appreciate you saying that um, we've recently had uh, Dan uh, McNamee, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly, or yep, I've, yep. I've, I've had an interview yep. him online, and he's he provided some great stories, and he obviously he's tested loads of games for Atari, and he, he was a massive fan of Alien vs. Predator, and it, apparently he provided the sound of humans being impregnated <laughs> by, by, by recording himself eating an apple. I mean, I mean, you, I mean, that's a great little fact. I mean, do you have any other interesting pieces of trivia or Easter, Easter eggs you'd be happy to share? I mean, Dan McNamee was definitely one of the dedicated people at, at the Atari testing department that rose up and uh, did what it took to. And he spent many a night and weekends with us on the AVP crew, making AVP the best it could be. Yeah. That's, I do remember that, <laughs> the Apple part, too. <laughs> um, I, I suppose a little, another bit of trivia for AVP might be um, the voice of the computer that, you know, would you that you um, as the as the Marine that you navigated to that you found throughout the, the base. Um, was the voice was done by Sandra Miller, who worked at Atari and was happened to be married to Richard Miller, one of the Jaguar's primary hardware engineers nice. and designers. Um, and while meeting uh, one day, I was meeting with uh, the Atari audio manager James Grunke, and I remember us hearing Sandra speaking with someone in the hallways as they walked by, and we immediately had the same idea that her British accent would just be perfect for the game, and we sort of pulled her in and enlisted it right on the spot. And that was. Um, you know that kind of detail is yeah. sort of sort of the fun comp- stories I'm sort of starting to compile for this book that I'm getting ready to write. Oh, nice! So. I'll talk to you more of the book later. I'm sure. Brilliant! That's a great little fact. 
Is, is she credited in the game, or is it, is it? Yeah, yeah, we included her. It's just that that the knowledge that, like, you know, um, it was cool that you know she was, you know, bright and smart on her own, but also happened to be married to the primary jaguar. <laughs> you know, sort of one of the jaguar's fond, founding fathers, right? That's the primary play. technical director. Oh, that's a great fact. Thanks for sharing that. I love that. Um, Alien vs Predator. I mean, you, you can play three characters, which I think just gives the game such good playability and longevity. Do you have a preferred character to play? Um, and that, how would you reflect back, looking back at such an iconic game? You know, um, I always loved the story arc the Marine play, you know, the Marine game had. Yeah. Um, but I personally was fond of playing as the alien, actually. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the, um, I really liked the unique sort of infect your enemies to stay alive strategy that it was um, kind of a fun way to ba- make for both a different kind of play experience from the other two characters and really stayed true to the idea of um, being an alien hive mind and that kind of strange, you know, save the, you know, we're, we're all <laughs> one. <laughs> no, that's good. It's, 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 so, it's so different, so original at the time, so it stood out of it. And I, I agree. I, I love all the three. I'd, I'd probably sway just personally towards the Marine uh, story for myself, but, I, you know, I love playing around. We're putting the, the three different things in the control pad, the different... Um, yeah, inlays is absolutely incredible. I think it's the only Jaguar game with three separate inlays, isn't it? I think. So, yeah, and I, I just like, and I like the idea of a three-sided game. Like, who yeah. are we to say, like, to the aliens, the Marines, the bad guy, right? To the Predator, it's back, you know, it's like, I like that aspect of seeing things from other people's point of view and getting to kind of play around with that. So. That's right. Yeah, you could almost release three separate games, couldn't you? But I think, again, that's, that speaks about the ambition of the game to cram it all in one cartridge, so fair play to you. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And again, Sam Trammell was the one at the last minute to do, he extended the um, the memory budget for the cartridge. So mm. we were able to add all the layers of sound and audio. Um, we pretty much spent a little, we spent like a fraction of it on the remaining artwork, but most of it on audio when we got the extra two megs on the cartridge. Or on so. the uh, on the Apple Byte and sound effects, of course. <laughs> yep, yep. But I mean, again, James Grunke and the audio team at Atari, at the, you know, the internal audio team really rose up and kind of made that sort of atmospheric, yeah, creepy... Yeah. No, I agree. <laughs> really I, I mean, I think it's, it's, it is a first-person shooter, but it's almost got, almost like a survival horror sort of element to it. You have to, you can't waste bullets, you can't go Rambo-style. I think it's a very clever strategy sort of game as well. Uh, that's why yeah. I think it's it stood the test of time a bit. It's not just release all your bullets on the enemy. So I, that's why I like it as well. It's quite a clever game, I think. Well, thanks. I mean, everyone on the team, you know, it's, it, it makes all those nights that we spent up, stayed up making it <laughs> worth it. To, you know, the, to know that players out there stayed up all night playing. It. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. why we do this, right? <laughs> Fair pleasure. Um, such it was obviously one of the Jaguars' best-selling games. It was a huge success in that sense. But did you ever, did you or anyone else ever start working on a follow-up, either on the Jaguar or any other sort of console? Or? Well, um, after the, the original uh, AVP game was released in manufacturing, um, the internal Atari level design team and myself, you know, we reconvened at, um, there's another Atari producer, Ted Takichi, who hosted us a few times during the AVP process, mm. where he had this uh, massive screen television and the laser, the director's cut laser disc, laser disc of their versions of Alien and Predator movies that we studied initially to sort of kind of come up with the original design. And then after the game was released, we remet at his house and did a um, brainstorming sessions for, you know, what the design elements we'd want to include in a CD-ROM version. Oh, nice. You know, there was a consideration to make a, a Jaguar CD version of it. Um, oh, wow. We kind of put all, all these ideas into a document that we uh, submitted to 20th Century Fox. And um, 
my understanding is that they passed that along to the Rebellion team, who they then eventually hired to develop the PC version, which came out, I think, about four years later. Uh, <laughs> so they used some so, of your ideas. Wow. Right. <laughs> I mean, I wonder if this document still exists. I mean, it'd be so great, wouldn't it, to see it now and get it on the internet, wouldn't it? But I suppose, yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm not sure if uh, it survived my <laughs> multiple moves since then, but <laughs> I should go digging in the archives, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, so you might, you might actually have it knocking about. Fair play to you. Fair play. Yeah, if I come across it. I know I've got some of the, um, like that debug from the LucasArts days with like notes from Ron Gilbert on it. I know I've got that somewhere. That would be incredible to see. If one I can find it, I'll send you a photo or something. That would be excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, next next question. I, I've Whenever I've spoken to people who worked for the Jaguar before, I always like to ask them if they worked on any other games that were never released. And there's, there's, there's always one or two they can talk about. I mean, BJ West, he worked on Black Ice, White Noise. One of oh, most, yeah. One of the most infamous that. games never released, I think. I mean, I, I don't know if you ever got, got a lot of chance to see that yourself. But was there any... I, yeah, sorry. You, yeah, I did get to see it. Those guys had a really great vision. It was, again, ambitious. Um, and it's always like, oh, woulda, coulda, shoulda. Right? Oh, like, no. you know, I would have loved to have seen that one get finished ahead of its time i think that game would you, would you agree that's what i think oh personally. definitely definitely i mean when you look at what's happening even like in movies and games now it's like those guys bj west uh chris hudak um you know they, they those they really had it together as far as a, a kind of a forward-thinking vision of what a game could be yeah i know i totally agree but did you ever start working on any other any other jag games that were never released could you re- reveal a few um, yeah, I mean, off the top of my head, there were, um, again, kind of going back to that internal development push where initially we had four games because we had four programmers and it kind of came into two. Mm. The two that got cut, one was um, sort of a side-scrolling adventure shooter in the vein of Metroid that we were calling Space Pirate oh, at the cool. time. You know, I loved Metroid, so I was kind of interested in seeing that one, but um, that sort of hit the wall. And there's another one, I, I forget what we called it, I loosely called it what I call the Sanskrit journey. Um, there was an, a programmer, John Wentworth, who was a, a an Atari engineer who had envisioned this exploration game where players navigated worlds using symbols and hand gestures based in Sanskrit traditions. Wow. You know, it's pretty wildly ambitious and cool project and, again, way ahead of its time and, I, you know, probably best suited for, like, virtual reality setups with goggles and gloves. Um, it was just that like this sense. sort of cool transformation type of game um i would have loved to have seen that one get done that sounds so original i mean that that could work today you'd think i mean wow yeah i mean especially with the push on vr it's like it's, it's almost like the technology's kind of finally caught up to the idea and mm. john wentworth if you're out there go for it man <laughs> <laughs> yeah i agree i think that's it could be quite educational as well getting there to be fair wow yeah exactly and that was something i always value in a game you know where you learn something as well oh, good on you um the, i mean i'm like i told you earlier and james i'm sure you got more than the soft spot for the Jaguar but you know it didn't it was a bit of a fader overall in the grand scheme of things um why do you think Atari or what what would you think Atari should have done differently or would you even class the Jaguar as a fader what's your what's your view I mean I you have to look at the facts right like it didn't become it wasn't a Super Nintendo it wasn't a Sega Genesis right it didn't have that widespread appeal um there were some good games made for it um but, you know, when you look stop, when I have to stop and look at it, I have to realize, you know, Atari was a company that was stuck in time. Mm. You know, I think after it reached, you know, the stellar heights of the 2600 days, 
um, it resisted the realities of making more complex games for systems that were much, so much more capable. Um, you know, there was a disconnect in the philosophy at the comp, you know, at Atari that influenced those decisions early on that sort of set it on its path to demise. I hate to say it. Um, yeah. you know, the, there was a lack of programming and engineering tools or resources for developers to build from. So almost everyone was starting from scratch with unte- on untested systems, sometimes still in development. Um, and instead of kind of giving uh, dev teams like leg up on their projects, there was, I hate to say it, this basic idea that any programmer that needed such tools was an idiot almost. Right? That's like, a bit not from me, but from certain personalities at a, on the Atari sort of engineering side of things. They just viewed that kind of middleware as wasteful or something, but right. really it's essential when you're starting out on new console. Um, and, and I hate to say it, this is a Atari was guilty, but of, a lot of people are guilty of what I call not accepting the bad news early, mm. right? So <laughs> instead of accepting that the Jaguar titles were going to be more complex and thus demand larger development teams and much needed much bigger budgets and more time to build things in, they sort of set their initial course based on their 26 era of thinking, which, you know, like that four internal programmers meant they could get four games in less than six months, which is proved impossible, of course, you know, um, yeah. that type of uh, thinking you know, it did shift again, as I saw in the years I was there, Sam Trammell really sort of transformed his thinking from the old to the new. But sometimes, again, it's like a little too late, perhaps, you know, to really make the difference. Yeah, it's a, no, I, I agree. I, I, what you said, you know, actually completely makes sense now. It's such a shame, though, because I think the Jag had a lot of potential and games like there's more games like any versus Predator. Who knows what could have happened, eh? But there you go. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. I mean, we we really could have gave it our all, and you know, it's. Um, I was thankful to have the opportunity. Sort of like I hate to. I was look at it as the kind of the chaos that made things at Atari sort of you know crazy was also the same chaos that made it really excellent because yeah, yeah. you could sort of take the you know if Sam saw you had a vision he'd let you run with it and that's something I always again admire that he's let me sort of he saw that I had a plan for AVP and let me take it you know, to the finish line that I, that, you know, that we reached and keeping that gold standard for quality at the top of the list, you know. Good on you. Uh, I mean, we've only spoken about a few games you worked on today. We, we haven't got time to go through all your games. I mean, you've got a huge list actually, um, really, you know, proper respected games, but out of all the games you have worked on, is there, is there a game you're most proud of? Uh, can you explain why? Yeah. I mean, Alien versus Predator is still at the top of my list. I mean, yeah. it really does. Rep- it was a super challenging experience, you know, getting it made. Um, it, I was worked on the project. I think I once counted out to like 23 months, almost two years solid <laughs> working on it. Um, and the entire development teams, everyone sort of stepped up their efforts and applied themselves to relentlessly pushing the game and getting it to the finish line in the condition we did. You know, um, yeah, yeah. it was my, you know, as a producer, I was able to execute on the design plans that we had our dreams for. And again, sort of, you know, thanks to, uh, you know, Sam, he was able to give us the extra bit of runway at the end to sort of pull it all together and enlist the aid of the Atari internal development level designers and really make it the special game that it became. Fair enough. I don't suppose that any games you worked on a longer time period than Alien vs. Predator, is that fair? Uh, That's fair. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I've worked in a lot of shorter titles, uh, some of them longer, some of them less, but AVP was a marathon. It was, um, yeah. <laughs> nah, fair play. Um, a bit of a personal question in a way, but have you got, what you, apart from the games you've worked on, do you have any 
top three video games that you've played? I mean, I assume you're a river gamer outside the programming. What, what are your three games of all time, would you say? It's a tough question. Oh. <laughs> yeah, man, that, that is a hard question. You know, there are so many different types of games and so many moods to be in to play. I mean, like, I could kind of rattle off. I'm currently playing things like, you know, Destiny and Need for Speed. But yeah. if I had to narrow it down to, like, my favorites of all time, I'd probably go, uh, this is going to sound boring, but maybe Tetris, which is, yeah, I know it's it. a chocolate chip cookie recipe of <laughs> gameplay, but it really is a, an epic classic that I still, you know, can pick up and play at almost any time still to this day. Um, I don't know if you remember this one. Uh, I have a soft spot for some racing games. So Motor City Online, which was, you know, a, it was a fun game kind of buried underneath um, ah. a top heavy interface. I've never heard but, of it. I'll have to check it out. Definitely. It was actually built by the Need for Speed team in like um, the late 90s, early 2000s, and it was an MMO. Actually, it was a car racing MMO. Oh, nice. And um, if you could just get past, like, it unfortunately required you to have, sort of have a mechanical understanding of how cars fit together, <laughs> which was a little bit asking a bit, people a bit much. But if you could get past that and just, you know, use some of the publicly available setups that people posted online, you realize, like, wow, what a terrific fun racing game that became oh, cool. um the last one is probably sort of an old school one uh, the original hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy text adventure yeah you know i don't know if you ever had the i had the box copy that included things like the microscopic space fleet and peril sensitive glasses i mean one of the best you know games i ever had so much fun with right just yeah nice. the babble fish puzzle was amazingly hard but so satisfying when you got it done you know you're a fan of the books as well, I take it. Uh, oh, the series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just, yeah. <laughs> from the beginning, you know. Fair play to you, fair play to you. Um, what projects are you currently working on? Are you still working on games? or what kind Well, of um, to quote the prisoner, that would be, that would be telling. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I'm also in the process of actually, you know, putting all these different tales uh, from when I, my time when I started at Lucasfilm to around when I actually finally left Atari, um, I think into like a book or a blog with all the kind of juicy oh. behind the scenes details that Excellent. we've sort of been talk, touching on today. So. That'd be so good. Yeah, definitely. Give me a shout when you, you know, when that's ready to be like released or promoted and I'll, you know, definitely be interested to read that and get involved. In right on. For sure. I absolutely will. James, brilliant. That's excellent. I can't wait to see, you know, go into more detail with that. Um, you kind of answered it earlier, but I'll, you know, maybe there's a bit more to it. How did you actually get your nickname Purple? I don't assume it's your proper <laughs> middle name, is it? <laughs> yeah, not quite. Uh, <laughs> you know, when I first arrived at Lucasfilm, all the testers in the QA department um, had a nickname yeah. that we all used to log in to the, the bug database. And um, so for me, as I came driving up in a purple marbleized car with these purple tinted glasses and purple streaks in my hair, <laughs> you know, the, the name Purple was given and it just stuck with me. So nice. that's pretty fun. <laughs> Have you still got the purple streaks in your hair? Is that is that long gone? <laughs> um, the streaks, no, but I still wear the purple glasses. Yes. So. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> My hair is more grey now than anything. So <laughs> Fair enough. Happens. How about the car? Is that is that gone as well now? <laughs> yeah, the car sadly didn't make it. Um, as much as I love the car, it was a mechanical mess, so I had to cut that one loose as well. <laughs> I'll try to maybe dig up a picture and send it over to you. <laughs> Oh, James, it's been such a pleasure. I mean, honestly, the, the stories you told me are brilliant and thank you so much for your time. I've, I've got one more final question just before we say goodbye. Um, is We ask all our guests, we ask all the people we interview, but if you, it's a bit of a weird question. If you could go for a drink or hang out with a, <laughs> with a video game character, who would you choose and why? 
<laughs> oh man, that's another <laughs> tough one, you know, because of course there's that kind of like buy that guy a beer factor, you know, for heroes like, you know, Seamus from Metroid yeah. or even Mario even. But yeah. um, then there's that sort of side where it's like instead, you know, let's go out for grog with that saucy pirate um, would have to be the saucy pirate Risky Boots, the main villain character from uh, the game Shantae. Yeah, yeah. It's an original side scroller game made by one of my favorite developers in the business, the nice and smart people at Way Forward. So, oh, nice. Risky Boots, uh, let's go for some grog, baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll join you for some grog, definitely. Monkey Island style. Um, exactly. <laughs> James, it's been a real, real honor. And, you know, I know our fans are going to love it. And, you know, I'd really appreciate your time today. You know, it's, it's been a real pleasure. So, thank you so much. Oh well, thanks for giving you know. Thanks for your interest, and it's been great talking with you. I, it's, it's been love, you know, fun to sort of uh, shake out the dust from the memory banks and uh, get this stuff out of the system and get it down on paper. So nice that's why I want to get this book sort of underway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please, please keep us in the loop because we. I definitely get a copy for myself, and I know other people will be very interested. So nice one, James. Introducing Alien versus Predator. For the 64-bit Atari Jaguar, you might not want to play it alone. Ah! Mom. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get in touch regarding this week's episode or anything else, you can tweet us at Arcade Attack UK, at Keith Barlow82, and at Arcade underscore Adriano. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash Arcade Attack UK. Please check out our website at arcadeattack.co.uk for lots of retro gaming goodness, interviews, reviews, features, top 10s, etc. And you can also find all our previous podcasts there. Our podcasts are available to stream from the website and are available to download for free from Stitcher, Podbean and iTunes, where you can also leave us a review and a rating, which we would really, really appreciate. So until next time, take care and we'll speak to you soon.